Hi everyone. Um, welcome to the Sydney Ideas Public Lecture Series at the University of Sydney. I'm Meredith Hall, uh, Program Manager for Sydney Ideas. I'm delighted to in, um, see you at this intimate gathering tonight for Sydney Ideas. Um, well, I'm very pleased to be working with the Department of Archaeology on our first uh, co-presentation for National Archaeology Week 2016. So I hope you enjoy tonight's presentations and we look forward to seeing you more. The format for this evening is two presentations, so it's a, it's a bit unusual. We've got like two, two short um, presentations and then the opportunity to ask questions. First of all, um, Steve Brown will be talking on Wastelands and Wonderland Bikini Atoll from Atomic Testing... Oh, he changed his title. Atomic Tests and Archaeology. Steve is a lecturer in archaeology and the Master of Museum and Heritage Studies program. Then we'll, we'll ha take a few, Steve will take a few short questions and then we'll open up the floor to, sorry, then we'll invite James Flexner, who is a lecturer in historical archaeology and heritage in the Department of Archaeology. And James's presentation will be on Sydney missionary, Sydney's missionary connections to the New Hebrides in the 19th century. So I hope you enjoy these presentations on archaeology and heritage in the tropical Pacific. Thanks. Thank you, Meredith. Welcome to the intimate gathering. Um, I'll be reading quite a bit and then talking freely to bits, so just to get through, and I expect to talk about 20, 25 minutes and then welcome questions. Thank you. So the rather large coconut crab was delicious. It was also an archaeological artefact since its body bears witness to atomic and nuclear bomb testing carried out on Bikini Atoll in the 1950s and 1960s. Unbeknown to the crab, when it eats coconuts, its primary food source, it takes up or ingests the radioactive elements cesium-137 and strontium-90. That is, it carries in physical form evidence of past human activities, the stuff of archaeology. And this is the memory that the body of the crab has inherited. The Castle Bravo test, the first deliverable hydrogen bomb in the world and the second largest nuclear device ever detonated. It decimated three of Bikini Atoll's islands and created a crater two kilometres wide and 80 metres deep. In this presentation I will focus on the archaeology of Bikini Atoll. Bomb testing by the USA is the story most associated with this World Heritage listed land and seascape. I will start with the World Heritage Listing, then briefly outline the history of the atoll and later show a range of images depicting the visible material evidence of pre-, during- and post-bomb testing. Finally, I'll make some remarks on what World Heritage Listing means. I will be moving quickly through a lot of images and I apologise in advance for the short time that I spend on any one of them. The reason I went to Bikini Atoll was not to do archaeological work, Rather, I went to undertake a technical evaluation mission for international ICOMOS as part of the assessment process for the World Heritage nomination. I spent a week on the atoll, an amazing week on the atoll, in September 2009. On being there, I realised that many of the features referenced in the World Heritage nomination dossier or file had never been recorded. I therefore took it upon myself to undertake a preliminary inventory so armed with a cheap camera, notebook, two pencils, sharpener and borrowed torch, I sweated through my quest. 
I was accompanied on this journey by five Bikinians. Today the Bikinian population, numbering some 4,000 people, do not live on Bikini Atoll because of high radiation levels. But before starting off, some of you may be thinking, where the heck are we? Bikini Atoll is, made up, is part of the Republic of the Marshall Islands, which is made up of 29 low-lying coral atolls. So this is Bikini Atoll here. Um, Enewetak was another place where bomb testing took place. Uh, Majuro is the capital island of the 29 and Kwajalein um, is an island where the US um, lease uh, uh, land for military uh, establishment. And here is the the Federated States of Micronesia and um, the Marshall Islands. Um, The atolls are believed to inform of of Bikini down here. Um, I believe to have formed 3,000 years ago and required another 1,000 years to make them habitable. Bikini Atoll comprises 23 islands with a land area of 720 hectares which encircle a lagoon which extends 40 kilometres east-west down here uh, and 22 kilometres north-south. The lagoon is 60 metres deep at its deepest. Now back to the World Heritage story. On Sunday the 1st of August 2010, during the 34th session of the World Heritage Committee in Brasilia, Bikini Atoll Nuclear Test Site, Republic of the Marshall Islands, was inscribed on the World Heritage List as an outstanding technological ensemble and because of its association with outstanding artistic and literary work. Ten months earlier, on the 10th of September 2009, I'd been on Ayaman Island talking with Bikinian councilmen Wilson Note and Banjo Joel. My field notes reflect on the encounter. After visiting and recording a bunker which rises like a modern-day Mayan ruin above an eroding shoreline, I sat with Wilson and Banjo on a rock platform while we awaited Edward's return. Edward was the boatman. I was filled with conflicted feelings. I was overwhelmed, even thrilled, though somewhat heat-exhausted, at being in the presence of physical remains of such a massively destructive event and was also deeply disturbed by the knowledge of the historical experience of Bikinians like Wilson and Banjo. Wilson talked calmly about the loss of vegetation on Aoman, how so few coconut palms had returned, the absence of ancient breadfruit trees, and the lack of useful food and medicine plants. There was a great sadness, though no anger or nostalgia, and a sense of terrible loss in Wilson's words. So what is the story of bombs and bikinis? On the 7th of March 1946, the entire indigenous population of 167 was removed at the behest of Commodore Ben H. Wyatt, US military governor of the Marshall Islands. Before departing, the Bikinians visited their ancestral cemetery and then they were shipped out. Bikini Atoll was to be the site of major atomic experiments by the USA. On the 1st of July 1946, as part of Operation Crossroads, the first atomic test, the fourth ever exploded atomic bomb after those at Trinity, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, 
took place at Bikini Atoll. Operation Crossroads was a global event intended as a spectacle and an extravaganza and a demonstration of the military supremacy, power and technological advancement of the USA. Over 42,000 US military and civilian personnel were involved. More than 700 film and still cameras manned by over 500 photographers and 170 journalists, plus international observers, witnessed the event and created a vast public record used to report the event by the media throughout the world. Four days after the atomic, able atomic test, car engineer Louis Riard introduced the bikini with the first version, a G-string with newspaper type printed across, modelled by Michelin Bernardini, a nude dancer from the Casino de Paris at a public pool in Paris. The bikini, by some accounts, represented the vestiges of clothing that would remain after experiencing an atomic explosion. <laughs> atomic evoked sensational, perhaps even archaeological, after the July 1946 test, Bikini Atoll was not used until 1954, on March the 1st of that year, by which time the Bikinians were languishing on the remote solitary island of Kili. The Castle Bravo test, the first deliverable hydrogen bomb in the world, destroyed three of Bikini's islands and created a, create a crater two kilometres wide and 80 metres deep. Nuclear fallout affected 64 people living on Rongelup Atoll, 18 people residing at Alingine Atoll and the 23-member crew of the Japanese fishing vessel Lucky Dragon No. 5. A further 18 nuclear tests were carried out on Bikini Atoll between 1954 and 1958. In 1968, President Lyndon B. Johnson promised 540 Bikinians living on Kili and other islands that they could return to their homeland. However, in 1978, the 139 repatriated Bikinians living at the atoll were evacuated after tests showed that they had radiation levels, mostly cesium-137, well above the US maximum permissible levels. The atoll is visited but has only been permanently occupied since but has not been permanently occupied since that time by the Bikinians. So what does the archaeological record look like? The traditional system of land tenure on Bikini Island comprises parcels of land or weto uh, that run in strips across the islands extending from the lagoon to the ocean sides. For example, Bikini Island in the top left in 1946 was shared amongst 11 matrilineages, each with a hereditary head or alap. US Army archaeologist Charles F. Streck undertook excavations at Bikini Atoll in 1985. He recovered an artefact assemblage of over 300 items, including shell ornaments, shell and coral tools and pearl shell fish hooks, and also located many earth ovens. Two places are known that relate to the pre-Christian belief system of the Bikinian people. One is the grassy reef head in the lagoon associated with the most powerful god, Wo'itshabotl, who created many of the two islets of the atoll. These include the male Siamese twins, Quelic and Quiar, um, hurled into the ocean by Wa'itsha uh, bottle. The map of Bikini Atoll shows the location of 22 atomic bomb tests in and around the lagoon. 
The most well-known surviving material evidence of the nuclear test includes the 21 experimental target vessels sunk in Bikini Atoll's lagoon during operational crossroads in July 1946. These ships were some of the 88 target vessels laid out across Bikini's lagoon by the US in order to assess the effects of the July 1946 atomic tests. And you can see the patterns of the, the, the ships in the lagoon laid out at the top there. I will now move more quickly through the bunkers that I visited and recorded on Bikini Atoll. These concrete structures associated with the 1954 to 1958 period of bomb testing. Um, so this, this particular one was on Nam Island, which is closest to where the Bravo atomic tests took place. They are generally massive um, concrete blocks in, in peculiar, well, not peculiar to the constructors' shapes, um, and kind of gradually being taken over by the local vegetation. It gives them that kind of ruinous kind of effect. Um, Ayaman Island, um, which is the bunker I showed earlier. Uh, Javej Island, um, which is kind of notable for a number of things, but there is um, large amounts of down here um, and other places, remains of lead and a, a little bit of graffiti. Generally, there was no graffiti around um, on these things that I could find. Um, this one is, is um, very visible for long spaces of, around the Bikini Atoll because it's right on the edge of one of the islands and you can see in some areas it's being undercut by uh, uh, erosion of the, the beach areas. Um, this is uh, the com communications bunker on NU Island, which is near Bikini Island, um, and it's said to be the building from which calls were made to US President Truman prior to the two 1946 bomb explosions. This is the firing bunker, which was contained the bomb switch for the 54 to 58 tests, so where they uh, exploded the bombs from. The assembly bunker... Um, where final assembly of bombs took place. Um, the hot, the, there was a wood and iron structure in this area, um, but it was demolished in the 1990s as it was considered unsafe. So the way in which these three operational bunkers operated require further detailed research into the technology of nuclear technology, which in the 1950s was a new and rapidly changing field of scientific endeavour. There, were, there may be no other correlates for some of the activities and, uh, and technologies involved in, the, in, in these explosions because the kind of science of, uh, of, of uh, the nuclear um, experimentation and testing developed very rapidly in this, period, this Cold War period. Um, this was a generation bunker which provided power um, to, to many of the, uh, the other places. Um, this, this shows a number of the other features associated with the testing. So we've got uh, jetties like this, a causeway between two of the small islands. Um, these huge, massive concrete blocks which were, um, which were for um, uh, weights for um, holding down enormous towers which partly were, uh, mostly actually, were recorded with, cam with cameras on them to record what was going on. 
masses of this kind of cabling under uh, underwater and across the islands are visible here, um, and the walls of uh, a remnant of one of the camps that was used. But particularly Bikini and Enu were completely covered in buildings during this second period of testing. Most of them were um, temporary, so only the only visible ones tend to be the, the concrete bunkers. Um, then the remains of uh, the resettlement period from 1968 to 1978, um, when people moved back and before they were take, again left the island, these kind of rubbish areas, um, this massive planting took place of coconut palms, which you can see on Google Maps here as the grid of the 30-foot grid of coconut plants, uh, which were um, to kind of restore vegetation back to the islands. And that's what they look like on the ground. Um, this is the village. Um, so, in 1996, um, the uh, Bikinians set up a, a kind of business enterprise of bringing people over to, to do diving on the sunken ships. So, the ships are 60 metres down, so it was a, a market for very skilled divers who could dive. Twelve people at a time would go. They were flown to the island, spent a week doing dives on the ships, and then went back again. In 20, about 2010, um, because of problems with the reliability of the aircraft, the operation was closed down, but it has been re-established more recently. You know, one of the reasons I mentioned that uh, Bikini Atoll was put on the World Heritage List was because it's uh, associative uh, values. So, um, so the, the Bikini Atoll test um, had a global in influence as seen in the association with the bikini, of course, but Salvador Dali's three sphinxes of bikini, the nuclear Japanese monster Godzilla, the location of Moby Dick in the 1956 film, the American animated character SpongeBob SquarePants from Bikini Bottom and the global peace movement. There's no escaping the fact that the atomic bomb testing between 1946 and 1958 was a humanly willed catastrophe wrought on Bikini Atoll, its indigenous inhabitants and those Marshallese, American and Japanese individuals who either died or suffered health effects from the testing. The testing was controversial at the time in the context of the history of, Cold War, of the Cold War and colonialism. Before my Micronesian excursion to Bikini Atoll, I was finding it hard to reconcile how displaced peoples could initiate and support World Heritage listing of their homeland for the very reasons that made it uninhabitable. I now think that part of the answer would seem to lie in the area of a subversive space. World Heritage listing has rematerialised and reimagined Bikini Atoll by privileging 12 years of the atoll's history, 1946 to 1958. The World Heritage meta-narrative fixes the account of the nuclear age and reduces the Bikinian people's story to a subplot. The materiality of history, the sunken fleet, the Bravo bomb crater, the bunkers and the cables, as well as the documentary record, evidences the nuclear narrative. The intangible values supporting outstanding universal value are global rather than local. For Bikinians, World Heritage Listing is not about Criteria 4, the outstanding materiali materiality of the technological ensemble of nuclear testing, 
or criteria six, the intangible associations. For present day Burkinians, a significant part of the global act of world heritage listing is keeping their story alive, the story of dispossession and promises unfulfilled for the good of mankind and to end all world wars as they were promised in 1946. And the story of multiple relocation um, ending up at uh, Kili Island, which is less than one kilometre in area and without a central lagoon. It is a David and Goliath story, a tiny population seeking recompense and compensation from a global superpower. Thus, Bikini Atoll, simultaneously imagined as a wasteland and wonderland, is a subversive space, space co-opted by both global and local actors. The UNESCO World Heritage Project, driven by a credible and representative world heritage ethos, has sought out the remote atoll of Bikini for listing. The global attention listing brings has been conscripted by Bikinians to further their goals of being heard, recognised and supported. And that is some of the story that resides within the body of the Bikini Atoll coconut crab. Thank you. So I'm happy after that run through the history and archaeology of Bikini Atoll to take any questions or any comments or elaborate. Uh, I'll just go back. Um, I actually don't really know is the, the, the basic okay. answer. I mean, these you, you obviously... Oh, these they, ones, they yeah. Tied in yeah. History, but but this one, for example... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, really, they... Yeah. Um, my... What I... The only little I do know is they were observation posts. Okay. So they had... Um, uh, they weren't so much involved with the technology of uh, developing putting the bombs together and exploding them, but they were, uh, as I understand, mostly filled with recording devices um, and, t and technologies at the time for recording and filming the explosions and observing them. Uh, I think they did. <laughs> Particularly the first one, the Abel explosion in the 1st of July 1946, was actually considered a bit of a dud in scientific terms in that it was kind of not as, an, as enormous and as powerful and damaging as was expected which is, and it had a limited effect on the ships that were um, the 88 ships placed in Lagoon because prior to these tests there was an argument between the US um, Navy and other parts of the armed services to say, well, if we have nuclear bombs, we don't need a Navy because nuclear bombs will destroy Navy. So the part of this was to test whether that was true or not and the evidence, even when the second bomb was exploded, which was much more powerful, the Baker bomb, um, uh, still in, in kind of nuclear terms, only sunk 21 of the 88 ships in the lagoon. So it was then argued that navies weren't made. Superfluous. I'd have to look it up. Sorry, I can't remember. I'm not very good at the technical stuff. I'm sorry. How dangerous is a diving army? Is some of the radiation still around? Uh, well, no. 
Um, the US have been doing almost constant monitoring since the 60s um, of radiation levels. Um, the, <coughs> the issue, as I said, with the, in 1978 with people who had re-inhabited the islands was the uptake of um, a, a couple of uh, radioactive elements out of terrestrial was also it came from the coconuts and the coconut crabs because they eat the coconuts. However, in the oceans, the radioactive elements have been widely dissipated by the ocean, so probably on the east coast of Australia or something like that. Um, and therefore, the, the sea resources are considered not dangerous in, in that sense. Um, and from my point of view, um, when I, I mean, because when I went there, um, they said you would have to, the 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 advice was that you would have to spend a long period and eat lots of coconuts um, before you would take up cesium in any um, significant amount. However, the whole issue around the, what is safe is a real problem for Bikinians because it's very difficult to know what is safe. There's been shifting kind of measures of how much radioactivity the human body can take and so for Bikinians, they're kind of left in this quandary, who do you believe, what is the evidence to believe and when could you ever re-inhabit the, the atolls, which is still their long-term goal. Barbara? Um, I think they still have desires to go back to Bikini Atoll. There is now 4,000 from the original 200 people, so there's some issues around how that happens. Um, there's a very... Uh, the, there's been large compensation packages made by the US to the Bikinians. That, that has benefited a large number, not all of them, um, and many live in the USA, in fact, and they've gone through universities and, and so they're a very educated um, kind of sector of the population and they are, because they have been negotiating with lawyers and administrators and met all sorts of uh, uh, kind of high-level US politicians, um, they are very kind of engaged in world politics. Um, so I'm not quite sure what they would say their narrative is, but um, <laughs> it's much more global than it was ever in the past. Uh, the two metres. <laughs> uh, limited hope. There's been some quite damaging... It's more... Um, more than uh, it's the sea surges that happen that have split some of the islands. Um, uh, when I was in Majura, the, the capital island, I was going from the airport in a taxi to wherever I was going. Um, you, we went over a low bridge and the taxi driver said, we went out the highest point in the Marshall Islands, which is about <laughs> three metres over the water. <laughs> but um, a very frightening prospect for people living there now and people wanting to re-inhabit. I mean, a fantastic example of Samoa and the rest of the name. Yeah. Well, they, they were the territorial owners after 1945. Um, prior to that, it had been the Japanese since 1919 um, and the, um, the atoll was defended by five Japanese soldiers during the Second World War and this was then taken in 1945 and became, uh, was awarded to the US um, as a um, territory um, and that lasted, I have to remember the date, till about the early 70s or so when there was a compact of association negotiated between the USA and the Marshall Islands um, which was a semi-independence but there was a kind of dependent relationship which is expressed I think most at Kwajalein Island where 
um, the, the American missile testing base is situated and they pay significant rents, which is a significant part of the income for the Marshall Islands. And that's, that's, uh, that lease on Quadrant was renegotiated and it now extends till, I think, nine, uh, 2023. So it's an independent but dependent kind of uh, country. I might leave it there so James can speak. So thank you very much. So now we're going to go to a slightly different part of the South Pacific. We're going to cross the artificial boundary from Micronesia to island Melanesia. Um, and I have to acknowledge that this is the research that I'm going to be talking about today uh, is part of a partnership with the Vanuatu Cultural Center. Um, it mostly took place while I was a postdoctoral fellow at the ANU uh, from a DECRA fellowship funded by the Australian Research Council, um, and part of the research was also funded by the Leo Fleischmann Fellowship from the Australian Museum. Um, and I have to thank our organizers at Sydney Ideas and National Archaeology Week for, for sponsoring and organizing this uh, series of talks. Um, so the project I'm going to be talking about today was a five-year project carried out on the islands of Tana and Aramongo uh, in the southern part of Vanuatu. And there's a URL here for those who want more information about the broader project. Um, it involved survey and excavation of a number of sites associated with Presbyterian missionary activities in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, um, as well as excavation of um, Melanesian uh, village sites and um, documentation of kind of customary landscapes um, in, in indigenous terms. Um, what I want to talk about today is specifically some of the Sydney connections that uh, come out of this research. Um, and so specifically, I'm going to talk about two uh, case studies uh, uh, stemming from this archaeological project. One is a prefabricated timber church located in the community of Lenikel on the island of Tana. Uh, and the other is right around the corner uh, at the Australian Museum, which holds a large co uh, collection of objects um, from the, these, relating to these missionary encounters uh, in the 1800s. Um, so, you know, again, where Steve was talking about is up here in the Marshall Islands, now we're down in, in Vanuatu, and, and specifically um, the island of Tana is located here in the south. And I'll talk, I'll reference as well um, Futuna, Aniwa, and Anaitium in, in part of this talk. So, Sydney, uh, for those of you who didn't know, was an innovator in the history of prefabricated architecture. I think most people think of the idea of modular or prefabricated homes as very much a recent kind of innovation in the way that we build uh, structures. But in fact, um, this is a practice that has a long history in terms of the history of in, uh, industry. Um, in Sydney, one of the major uh, early... Um, sort of uh, organizations that participated in this construction of prefabricated buildings was a company called Saxton and Bins, uh, later Saxton Island Homes, which had a large factory in Piermont. As, as you can see from uh, this illustration, 
It was a major industrial operation involving uh, a large number of functionally distinct buildings, as well as a pier upon which timbers could be deposited, where they were then reshaped in various ways. Um, and the idea with Saxton and Bin's operation is um, they really focused on colonial Australia and the colonial Pacific, and the idea is you could get your entire community's buildings from this company. You could get a house, you could get churches, you could get um, a store and a post office and all of the other buildings that you needed to set up a colony anywhere in Australasia or near Oceania um, from this company and they would ship the buildings to you as a prefabricated kit of um, sawn timbers, molding and fittings uh, and within a relatively small amount of time a relatively skilled carpenter could set up the entire infrastructure for a colonial settlement. Um, one of the buildings that they produced and shipped to the island of Tana is this uh, beautiful um, church which was erected in 1912 in the community of Lenikel uh, on Tana Island. Uh, the church was originally a top-of-the-line Peter model, um, which was one of the many different kinds of churches of various levels of elaboration uh, produced by Saxton and Binns. It was probably ordered by uh, the Reverend Dr. James Campbell Nicholson uh, on a trip to Australia in 1911, um, where he would have ordered the church and, and made plans to have it shipped to Tana. And we'll see some more evidence for that a little bit later. Uh, another thing I'll note at this point, and, and again, we'll, we'll talk about this more, is um, the plan of the church, uh, really the elevations of the church, have been altered somewhat. So you'll see uh, these um, straight gables uh, on the two transepts, which we're looking at one of them here, uh, have been replaced with these um, gablets. And the reason for that is in 1912, as they were building the church, they got the frame up, uh, and then, as often happens in the tropical Pacific, uh, there was a cyclone, the frame was blown down, and a number of the structural timbers were damaged, which necessitated uh, this, this um, redesign of the building with a lower, uh, less steeply pitched roof line, which, interestingly, um, was later credited with the longevity of the building, with its ability to withstand subsequent major storm events. Um, although that also has a somewhat tragic end to it. Um, so you can see the history of this uh, design modification in the actual timbers of the building. So what you're looking at here is um, inside of the uh, ceiling, the way that the um, ceiling joists and the roof beams are put together, uh, and this particular uh, vertical strut, which is holding up the um, ridge beam, uh, is actually a repurposed top plate. So basically the way these buildings were put together, um, you would have a base plate uh, and a top plate, each of which would have had mortise and tenon holes in them, uh, and then you would basically stick the studs into to these. The vertical studs would go into these holes. Uh, so clearly this has been moved. Uh, and in fact, you can't really see it that well from this picture, but the top of it has, has been um, sort of broken off and then very roughly placed um, next to the recut and placed next to the roof plate. Um, 
Again, there's a long history of cyclone damage, so the building is actually the third one on the site. Um, the original structure w would have been a very simple structure, we think probably built uh, of local materials, which stood until about 1909. Um, this was replaced by probably a less elaborate but also prefabricated timber structure uh, that itself blew down in uh, a cyclone in 1910, uh, and then the existing structure was sort of raised in 1912. Um, and you can see some of this in the uh, stratigraphy, the layering of um, the mortar footings of the building. Um, you can see here an area where a new footing overlies the original foundation. Uh, there are cracks that follow the lines where the different sets of footings were poured together. So if any of you have ever worked with a concrete structure before, right, if you pour one part of it and then pour another adjacent part, often as they settle, you'll get cracking in lines along the sort of seams between the different parts of the structure. Um, there's also a very interesting change in the material. So you can see uh, the interface here, you can see this kind of lighter gray and this darker gray. Um, these are the, the lighter gray on top, which has sort of larger uh, pebbly, sort of coarse sand and, and small pebble inclusions in it, um, is the most recent footing, the footing associated with the 1912 structure. What's really interesting is it looks like there's a shift in this period from uh, what would have been locally produced lime mortar, which probably was made with shells and coral collected just from the reef offshore um, to industrially produced um, cement. Uh, so this has an ingredient called Portland cement, which makes it extremely hard uh, that probably would have been shipped possibly as part of the kit that um, Saxon and Binns would have sent to Tana. Um, as I said, there's various kinds of evidence for prefabrication. Uh, the JCN in this case is uh, the Reverend Dr. Nicholson I mentioned earlier. Uh, Tana, obviously the destination. So various beams bear this mark. They were stamping the beams to, so that they knew where to ship different parts of different buildings. Um, there were also various marks that relate to the assembly of the building. So uh, the door and window frames were uh, marked with these little numbers so that you knew where they went in the plan of the building. Uh, the piles under the sanctuary uh, or altar sort of area um, were marked with a P for pile. Um, and so these are really interesting little details that help to tell us about the ways that these kinds of structures were put together. Um, which we don't always know a lot about, right? We often have these kind of magazines that tell us what kind of stuff they sold you, but they don't necessarily tell you when you got the kit, how you put it together. So we've been piecing together a lot of that based on this kind of evidence. Um, I think of this building as a microcosm of global and local forces that really encapsulates a lot of what was happening in the colonial Pacific in the early, uh, in the early 20th century. Um, so the metal fittings on the building, uh, the locks, for example, uh, come from the English black country. Uh, this is a, a lock manufacturer from near Wolverhampton. Um, the corrugated metal on the roof uh, is a brand with which many of us are probably familiar, Lysocked Orb. Uh, this particular mark relates to production in Bristol. So this is before Lysocked's big sort of Australian operation had gotten started. Um, and interestingly, no, 
Okay. Um, interestingly, the timbers uh, of this building, we, we had a, a scientist who specializes in um, using optical microscopy to identify different sorts of timbers also come from all over the world. So we had, um, uh, what's it called? Um, Oregon pine and California redwood from the west coast of North America. We had cowrie from New Zealand. Uh, and we also had a, um, uh, the trade name, a tree for whom the trade name is White Baltic, which is a kind of spruce that was commonly grown in Eastern Europe, uh, as well as eucalypts. So different parts of the building were put together from different kinds of timber that were sourced from all over the world. So it's a very much global sort of operation. Um, the flip side of this is the building was also really an integral part of the local community and local community dynamics. Um, I've done a lot of writing about the idea that in Vanuatu, Christianity and specifically the kind of heritage of missionaries and mission sites are not thought of as kind of white people's exterior colonial, colonial history because people identify as Christians and Pacific Islanders and in fact they see those two identities as integral to each other. Um, they really think of this as their heritage. And again, there, there are a lot of um, really good reasons for it. So this terrace on which the church sits is cut into a hillside. This is a topographic map that we did of the site. Um, we measured, or I, I used a sort of series of tools to estimate how much uh, earth was moved, and it was it estimated that somewhere between 3,500 and 4,000 cubic meters would have been removed with hand tools, baskets, um, and manual, only manual um, sort of power uh, over a period of probably about a week in um, 1910 to make room for this church. So very, and this was uh, a major labor operation that would have been uh, undertaken by local uh, chiefs who were also themselves among the first elders in the Presbyterian church, including one uh, named Yavis. And interestingly, uh, on Tana Island, um, titles are often passed down and as titles are passed down, so are the names. And um, the sort of form of this is something that the anthropologist Marshall Solins has called the heroic eye, in which if you inherit a title, you not only are inheriting uh, the status that comes with the title, but also something of the accomplishments of all the other pr people who've held that title before. So this is uh, my friend Yavis Nikyatu, who is part of this lineage of Yavises. Uh, who have always been uh, integral to the history of the Presbyterian Church in this part of Tana, and particularly um, to uh, protecting and maintaining uh, the community's relationship to this, this site and some of the associated um, archaeological features around it. Unfortunately, the last time I visited the site, uh, which was in um, July of 2015, uh, this is what it looked like. Um, tropical cyclone Pam, which had sustained winds up to, I think, 280 kilometers an hour, uh, completely flattened what remained of the site. Um, we did find a few kind of interesting details because, ironically, from an archaeological perspective, you can often 
pick out things that you wouldn't be able to pick out in a standing building uh, in one that's been blown over. So we found this interesting uh, kind of concentration of um, sea snail shells that may have been a sort of ritual offering associated with uh, the construction of the church. Uh, and we found that there, there tend to be these kind of concentrations of shells around the corners uh, of the building. So that's a sort of interesting um, detail. Um, but as you can see, the um, site itself has been completely destroyed. Interestingly, and again, this has to do with kind of different ways that Melanesian people think about their heritage, the local communities not only still see this as a significant site, but still see it as a site that they can rebuild somehow. Um, because for Melanesian people, the idea is these kinds of sites are about the stories and the kinds of affinal sort of connections that you have rather than the physical fabric of the structures. And that's a sort of interesting idea when you're thinking about how you do archaeological work and how you think about issues of conservation and protection of these kinds of sites um, in places where maybe the physical kind of fabric of uh, these, these kinds of heritage sites is actually less important to um, the communities, even though as an archaeologist, your instinct is to say that's where a lot of the information lies. And that's, that's something that, that we've dealt with a lot in, in working with local communities, and I think in very positive ways. We, we don't think these are things that conflict. They're complementary approaches to the material remains of the past that can work together uh, in dialogue with each other. Right, so that was one of the kind of significant Sydney connections is this, this prefabricated church. Um, the other thing I want to talk about is uh, the history of missionary collecting and specifically uh, the ways that uh, the Australian Museum's collection reflects these long-term kind of Pacific connections um, in, in Sydney. Uh, so the Australian Museum is Australia's oldest museum, uh, founded in 1827. Um, and it houses an enormous collection of material from throughout the Pacific Islands, many, many thousands of objects, uh, and is particularly significant for its relationship, of early relationship to early collecting activities um, over the course of the 1800s and into the early 1900s. Um, the main new early New Hebrides collections in the Australian Museum are, uh, to me, somewhat unsurprisingly, largely accumulated through Presbyterian con connections. Um, the Presbyterian Church in the New Hebrides before the 1890s was really the major colonial endeavor, particularly in the Southern Islands, um, where I've been doing field work. Um, so some of the major collectors were people like a Scottish uh, missionary named James Hay Laurie, uh, who was not only uh, a collector of objects, but also one of the early major photographers in the islands. Uh, and he gave both objects and photographs uh, to the museum. Uh, Hugh Angus Robertson, which is a you know, good Scottish Presbyterian name if ever there was one, um, is uh, from what is now Nova Scotia, which at the time was the lower provinces of British North America, um, was also very active. Uh, he was resident missionary on Aramongo Island uh, and, and also, again, donated many things to the Australian Museum uh, and had close personal relationships with some of its early um, curators. 
Uh, and finally, there are a few objects from uh, Captain Braithwaite, who was the uh, captain of the Dayspring, which was the mission ship that would have done regular trips between uh, Australia and the New Hebrides um, to bring materials and also to move people as part of the mission endeavor. Uh, and I'll note here that, that um, the Australian Museum staff has, has sort of been doing ongoing work in uh, repatriation and community involvement with this um, collection, particularly uh, one of their curators, Yvonne Carrillo-Huffman, has been working a lot with different groups of people on Aramongo Island. Um, so various objects, including pieces of decorated bark cloth, have gone back to the Vanuatu Cultural Center, um, or there have been situations in which there's been uh, kind of digital repatriation of, of um, photographs and things like that. Um, so. I'm not going to talk so much about the contemporary uh, cultural setting in which these objects are situated. Um, I want to talk more about kind of the history of these objects and also the idea that we, we tend to draw this split in uh, collection, sort of cultural collections between ethnology and archaeology, where the idea is archaeology is something that you go and you dig out of the ground, uh, and ethnology is something that has to do with um, living people. Um, and in places like Oceania and Australia especially, these lines become a little bit blurred. Um, and so I'm, I'm interested in what these kind of ethno collections that are usually labeled ethnology or ethnography uh, can tell us about the archaeology, especially of the 19th century. Uh, and there are a couple of things that I, I think are particularly useful in this regard. One is uh, they contain things that we won't find in archaeological sites, so things that are made of organic materials, especially in the humid tropics of the Pacific Islands, are not going to survive in most conditions. Um, and so it's a useful kind of supplement to what we, you know, when I go to dig up an archaeological site in Vanuatu, what I find are British stonewares and glass and iron nails and all this kind of European imported stuff. Um, if I want to see Melanesian things from the 19th century, I have to go to a museum and go into their stores. They also represent a record of kind of Melanesian agency in uh, colonial trade. So um, various people have talked about this, including uh, Robin Torrance, who's sitting in the audience, who hopefully will take it easy on me during question time. Um, <laughs> they, they provide a record of um, the ways that Melanesian people would create innovative kinds of material forms, both in response to what was available in the colonial trade and also in response to what they increasingly recognized as European desires about different kinds of objects. Um, they were producing things specifically for this trade in what were called curiosities. Um, and, and a third thing is that um, these kinds of objects can provide information, I think, about the mobility of objects and people during this time period. Um, they can tell us about the ways that in the 19th century a lot of traditional patterns of mobility were amplified through these emergent colonial networks, particularly as people got access to uh, not only long-distance sailing ships, but also the, the um, new technology of steamships. Uh, in the early part of the 1900s. Um, and so part of my research, in addition to going to Vanuatu and digging holes and documenting old buildings, has been to do a sort of survey of different ethnographic collections um, 
that have these early kind of New Hebrides collections relating to uh, missionary activities. One of the interesting things about the Australian Museum collection, um, which has a large number of, of really, uh, I think, significant objects, um, particularly from Aramongo Island, is the number of objects they have that have to do with the sort of tools and technology of people from the southern New Hebrides. And I think this comes from a couple of different threads of anthropological practice. So now we're talking about kind of the archaeology of anthropology as a discipline. Um, one is the idea that in the 19th century, anthropology still operated very much in a, an evolutionary mode. Um, there was a sense that there was a kind of ladder of progress or ladder of civilization on which different groups of people, uh, past and present, fell. Um, and so the Pacific Islands and particularly Melanesia were seen as um, living examples of a certain kind of Stone Age lifestyle. Um, and so materials like stone axes were seen as interesting um, because they were uh, related to the lives of living Stone Age people. I think there's also a slightly emerging thread, uh, and, and here some of the documentary evidence from Canadian museum collections might come into play, uh, of um, sort of functionalism, right? The idea that uh, you could understand human societies by breaking them into their component parts, um, and that uh, different societies would have different things that fit within those parts. So tools, um, in this case, tools for uh, cutting and chopping things, um, could be compared between, say, Melanesia and Polynesia and Industrial Europe. But again, with reference to this kind of made-up ladder of civilization. Um, going back to the idea of how these things reflect mobility, there are some interesting examples of objects uh, in the Australian Museum and, and other collections. Uh, and I just highlighted a couple of these that have sort of interesting uh, potential, although at this point, you know, I'm doing more research to see how these things could have worked. So these forms of pearl shell pendants are quite distinctive. Um, they're commonly attributed to Futuna Island, uh, which is interesting in that it's a Polynesian outlier. Um, although they're often also found on Tana and, um, and Anitium, uh, which are neighboring islands. I, I should explain, Polynesian outliers are islands that have a Polynesian language and culture, but are geographically within what anthropologists have typically called Melanesia. Um, a sort of interesting anecdote about these kind of pendants is uh, in the 1890s, an anthropologist named Alfred Court Haddon went to the Torres Strait Islands, and when he was on Mare, uh, he found people making pendants that looked like this. Uh, when he asked them about it, it turned out there was a man from Tana who had been shipwrecked on Mare and taught everyone to make these sort of pendants, and they were happily just sort of producing them and, and uh, wearing them and trading them. Um, so that is, I think, an excellent example of the extent to which colonial networks sort of amplified Pacific mobility. Um, these kinds of uh, whale's tooth pendants, which are made from a ground sperm whale tooth, were very important uh, chiefly items, items of chiefly adornment. And there's some potential, although, as I said, you know, take this with the tiniest grain of salt, 
or the biggest grain of salt, whichever one makes it you know, clear that I'm not really sure. Uh, there's some possibility that there, there may be some kind of um, trade with, with Fiji to, uh, to the east. Um, much uh, clearer are these greenstone pendants, which are certainly produced uh, from any number of greenstone sources in New Caledonia, which is a neighboring group um, some uh, 400 kilometers to the west of, of southern Vanuatu. Um, and it's probably worth noting that, that the separation between Vanuatu and New Caledonia is really an artifact of colonial society. There are very close, long-standing relationships between particularly Tana and Anaitium and the Loyalty Islands in New Caledonia uh, that span long before uh, British and French colonialism in the region. Um, and so again, the, the fact that we're finding these things going into Tana and Anaitium and Futuna is significant in relation to these long-distance and also very much long-term traditional exchange networks. Um, another kind of remarkable thing, and this I think is fairly unique to the Australian Museum, is the large number of raw and basic materials in the collections, uh, particularly in Robertson's collection. Um, so he collected not only uh, these nine candle nuts, but kind of strings and strings of them. There are hundreds of these things in the collection. Uh, likewise, this um, kind of calcite, which was used for making a certain form of traditional stone money. Um, again, there are dozens of these. There are dozens of wood samples. There's all of this material that is um, associated with uh, the idea of sort of not only what did people make, but how did they make it and what did they make it from. And to me, the fact that there's such a massive store of it, you know, you think you only really need so many candle nuts in your collection before people sort of go, okay, we get it, we know what a candle nut is now. To me, it indicates that Robertson must have thought that um, his collection was gonna somehow be further uh, distributed through either other Australian museums or perhaps more globally. And in fact, one of the things that makes um, the Australian museum collection interesting is the other half of the collection, the other major half of the collection done by uh, Reverend Robertson is in Canada at a place called the Red Path Museum, uh, which has been very well documented by an anthropologist named Barbara Lawson. Um, it doesn't have as much of this basic stuff. So it seems like when he was sending stuff abroad or when stuff kind of continued on from its voyage to Sydney and on up to uh, Canada, um, people were picking out the good stuff. They weren't picking out the rocks and sticks that he was sending into the collection. Um, this is kind of interesting to me because this is something that both the uh, traditional material, which is a kind of red earth um, that was eaten inside of this bottle, and the object itself are things that I wouldn't have in an archaeological context. So I might find a glass bottle, probably would be broken. I wouldn't find the paper label that would tell me that Reverend Robertson was consuming Stevens Gloucestershire uh, pickles mm, um, at home. So um, that was just a glimpse into, as I said, a very small part of, of a, a much more extensive project. But I think one of the interesting issues that this raises is Sydney has been throughout its history really a Pacific city. And it's very interesting to think about the long-term connections 
that our city has had with uh, our near neighbors in uh, the tropical islands not too far away. Um, Thank you to all of these people who uh, have helped out with this project uh, in various ways, um, particularly the community in Lenakel um, and the, the local office of the Vanuatu Cultural Center there, uh, to the staff at the Australian Museum who've helped in various aspects of the project, and finally to Sydney Ideas and National Archaeology Week. Any questions? Uh, well, this is, a, let's see, that one on the, on the right is uh, it's probably about that big. It's not enormous, but even then, it's, it's um, yeah, they, they do vary quite a lot in size. You get everything up to sort of 10 centimeters in diameter, which would definitely be the sort of dragging your neck down to um, ones that are, are little, tiny um, ones. What's interesting about them is you see two kinds of forms. Um, this is very reminiscent of a kind of ritual um, ad that they make in New Caledonia, particularly in the loyalties. This is also a more kind of rectangular ads that, um, that uh, people form that people would make independence. But they come in all kinds of shapes and sizes. It's a really variable sort of material culture. Um, and interestingly, uh, it was pointed out to a French geologist who was asking about these things that people don't actually mine too much if it's the real greenstone from New Caledonia. They'll make it from other stuff, and the important part is that it has a sort of story associated with it. So again, very much fits in with this kind of uh, Melanesian perspective of, you know, the physical fabric of the object is kind of important, but more important are the stories and the kind of social associations of these kinds of objects. Uh, this is to be determined. Uh, the last thing that happened when I was on Tana last year was I had a meeting with um, the local chiefs uh, which is how stuff gets done on Tana, well, how some stuff gets done on Tana. Um, and what they said is, uh, you know, we even had the kind of customary chiefs from the more traditional villages. So what happened in the colonial New Hebrides is you get population aggregations around the coast, which are usually located near mission stations, and then the interiors of islands generally remain more traditional. Uh, and the more customary chiefs, although I would argue that the Christian chiefs by the coast are also customary in their own way, uh, basically said, yeah, we recognize this site is important to the history of our island, um, and we want to do what we can. And so it's obviously no longer a, a conservation, a restoration project. It would be a reconstruction project. Um, What's happening right now is people in the community are curating some of the objects from the church. For example, the bell uh, is in Yavis's house, safely hidden away until the day when it can be brought back into uh, the community. Um, and we're just gonna we're gonna work with them to see what we can do in terms of contracting with the historic architect or whatever needs to happen to um, make things to move forward with things here. But that's going to be a long process, and it always was. 
Yeah, so I, I think there are a couple of things that happen uh, when you get the exchanges of these very significant, very personal kinds of objects um, that probably were not produced specifically for this kind of exchange. So a lot of the collections, you find things like um, bows and arrows, very kind of hastily made wooden clubs, uh, and very hastily made sort of bamboo hair combs that were probably made as kind of the equivalent of cheap tourist gugaws. Um, these kinds of things are, are very different, right? These are objects that would have had a lot of personal meaning and history associated with them. Um, I think they probably represent two things. One is um, when you find them, they were in the 19th century only given to missionaries. Missionaries had a very special status in these communities as a certain kind of foreign ritual practitioner with a lot of magical power um, who is in integrated into the community in some way. And I think it was a way of kind of entangling the missionary more in local exchange relationships in a way that made them more predictable and more controllable from a Melanesian perspective. Um, the other thing that happened, I think, is in the 19th century in Vanuatu, as elsewhere in the Pacific, there was massive depopulation of these islands. Um, introduced diseases like influenza, uh, syphilis, smallpox, uh, uh, dysentery were very rapidly um, decimating the population. And some of these objects, um, I'm not sure about these sort of pendants and things, but things like the Aramangan stone money um, were passed down through chiefly lineages people were probably dying so quickly that often there was no one to inherit these objects. And you've argued this for New Guinea as well, I think maybe not so much on the demographic side, but that, that in some ways exchanging these kinds of significant things to an outsider was a sort of safe way of getting them away from the community. I mean, almost like, you know, going back to the sort of bomb metaphor, it's this, this sort of ticking magical bomb and you have to kind of get it out while you still can. I think that's, those are two of the things that are probably happening with those. So um, the initial population of Vanuatu comes with uh, what archaeologists often call Lapita culture. Uh, it's a kind of um, archaeological culture, right? There were never any people who called themselves Lapita. It's something we made up. Uh, the name Lapita comes from a site in New Caledonia that happens to be the first one that was uh, dated by radiocarbon. Um, but uh, so they made a very distinctive uh, kind of dentate stamped pottery that you can see spread all, out, all throughout the Western Pacific from um, New Britain and New Ireland down through the Solomon Islands into Vanuatu out to New Caledonia, out to Fiji and a little bit to um, Western Samoa, and then it kind of drops off. Um, the Lapita settlement of Vanuatu probably took place between 3,000 and 2,800 years ago. Um, interesting that you mention it. So uh, Lapita has been found in southern Vanuatu on Aramongo and just a few years ago on Anitium. Uh, my colleagues, um, Stuart Bedford from the ANU and Frederic Valentin, who's from... Um, CNRS in France, uh, are going to be going in July to start a project where we're going to be looking at the long-term settlement of these islands, including hopefully finding Lapita sites for um, 
uh, Tana, Futuna, and Aniwa. Futuna and Aniwa should be interesting because they're quite small, uh, fairly marginal kinds of islands, but there's some indication in Vanuatu that in fact during the initial period of settlement, that's actually where people were going first. They weren't settling on the big high islands. They were kind of bouncing down these smaller ones. Now, whether that's real or just an issue of archaeological site sort of visibility, right, it's easier to find the Lapita site on the smaller island is something to be explored and determined. Um, but it should be quite a good project. Futuna and Aniwa are interesting because they also would have had a large migration of Polynesian migrants, although we're not sure how large and we're not sure exactly when, but certainly large enough that those two islands speak a very distinct language and have a very distinct set of cultural traditions relative to the neighboring islands. So we're going to be exploring that as well. Um, and because I'm involved, we're going to look at some mission sites because why not? So maybe at this point, I'll have Steve come back up here and we can sort of open up to any general questions that people had for, for either of us or, uh, or even for both of us. I think one of the, I was interested in what you were saying about the fabric of the church not being preeminent in thoughts about reconstruction. Um, I think one of the things with the Peniatol is that um, the, the management plan of accompanied the World Heritage nomination says that there will be no attempt at any conservation of anything mm. on Bikini Atoll. Obviously there's a logistical reason because people can't go there because of radioactivity um, but it's also a recognition that um, why are you conserving, you know, who you're conserving these for, why are you conserving them. Um, so it's kind of a kind of interesting thing and, and, and I suppose because the Bikinians are the customary owners of Bikini Atoll and the nuclear heritage is not a heritage, not their heritage, it's an inherited heritage. Um, why should they invest their limited funds and expertise in kind of maintaining these substantive and difficult and complex and structures? The Bikinis are getting advice from the US National Parks on the conservation of the sunken vessels. Um, because they're 60 metres down, there's kind of limited kind of effort to kind of do anything we call conservation on them. Um, the, the bridge of one of the major um, flagships is collapsing a little bit, but nobody sees any reason to kind of um, uh, to try and maintain that bridge. Um, and I guess now being um, 60 or 70 years since those ships were sunk, and they're in still very good in terms of uh, visitation in, in very good condition kind of thing. And global climatic change or repopulation of the islands will probably not have that much impact. And, and the number of divers is very limited. There's about 200 per year. Um, so yeah. yeah. Um, the Bikinians, um, the local government council, have enacted legislation which um, uh, makes it a criminal offence to remove objects um, and they enforce that because there's only a limited number of divers they enforce that by searching bags before people leave and they run a constant um, uh, one of the people with the bikini government runs a constant um, monitoring of eBay and other selling sites um, and on any alert on the word bikini basically that comes up um, they monitor 
And so far it's been very, um, as I understand it, it's been very minimal. Yeah, also the community So that's a protective mechanism in itself. There's a similar monitoring of um, there given the, is given for the certain yeah. So there there is for certain kinds of things, but it is I think like everything else in Vanuatu, it only works when there's a concerted effort from the community. So there are laws in place about the removal of cultural might call cultural heritage objects um, or customary objects from Vanuatu. Um, the sort of extent to which that is enforced is highly variable. So I know one anecdote where there was an extremely rare stone figurine that was um, had been sort of pulled out of the bush and sold, in quotes, to a French collector. Um, and basically it was it took the community chasing the guy down just before he got to the airport to make sure that this object wasn't sort of lost forever into the art um, collecting world. Um, I think that happens less often than things are removed, um, but I'm not sure. I mean, it's the Vanuatu Cultural Center is an incredible organization in many ways, but it is like many other Pacific Island-based museums, perennially underfunded and perennially understaffed. And it's very hard for them to maintain those kinds of things. Um, and the same goes for colonial heritage. There's a National Historic Site Survey that's theoretically tasked with documenting uh, and conserving uh, both traditional and colonial heritage. And uh, you know, they have two people on staff who occasionally get some time to work on this because they both have other responsibilities. Um, it's, it's a lot of work that still needs to be done. So, um, yeah. so those of you who are archaeologists or conservation specialists who have lots of time to volunteer, there's a <laughs> wonderful country in the Western Pacific um, where uh, you, know, you can work very closely with, with the local community to help them with projects that they're interested in. Uh, well, I think it's. Do they have any, any concept in advance of how much devastation they were going to be saddled with? Oh, I think absolutely not. I think no one really had the sense, even the Americans negotiating really didn't have a sense of what the atomic testing would do to the island. Um, there was a complex negotiation, but underpinning it was that. Um, the, the rule by the Japanese prior to the Second World War was quite authoritarian. There was some, quite a lot of cruelty to native Bikinians and um, some of the literature suggests that when the Americans came and they were in uniforms and tried to negotiate, whatever that means, um, with the Bikinians about the use of the atoll for bomb testing, the Bikinians... Um, were quite submissive because they had this long history of kind of um, being subject to uh, a kind of military occupation, and so, and, and they did believe they would, they were, they did believe that they would return within about 20 years. They didn't believe it would be a forever kind of arrangement. Yeah. Uh, 
Well, at the time, it was people still had a very poor understanding of what mm. radiation did to the human body in general, yeah. right? Mm. So it is a, um, a matter of kind of, I think probably no one really knew yeah. the extent to which they were going to be damaging yeah. that environment. Yeah. Yeah, they were removed before the first atomic bombs, which yeah, are two in that's July. That's a sort of hundred fold scale. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. The Americans uh, well, I think it depends what you mean by propaganda. I think the Americans truly believed that nuclear testing would um, position them as a preeminent world power and be the way in which world peace would operate, particularly following the Second World War. Um, but I don't think. Um, uh, the, so the Bikinians kind of believed that, that they were contributing to a world peace initiative rather than a cold war, as it turned out. Yeah. Any other questions? Well, thank you all very much for coming, and uh, hopefully we'll see you next year at the next National Archaeology Week. Thank you very much.